Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights and this podcast is all about human rights. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London and they are currently recruiting for three new lectureships including one in human rights and you can find out more on the Goldsmiths Law website. Today's episode is about digital courts, um, which is something which in normal times is an extremely interesting human rights issue about whether we can safely and successfully hold hearings online, by video, by phone. But that issue has taken on an extra level of importance following the COVID-19 outbreak because many court hearings can no longer take place in physical courts because of social distancing measures. And a whole range of hearings that previously have not been online have gone online. Today, I've got two experts on this area to talk about the questions for human rights and open justice that have arisen as a result. Dr. Natalie Byron, who is the Director of Research and Learning at the Legal Education Foundation, and Penelope Gibbs, who is the Director of Transform Justice. If you want to support the podcast, then please go to patreon.com forward slash better human. And it would be extremely helpful if anybody who enjoys and is informed by this podcast to consider giving a couple of pounds a month to help make sure that it is sustainable. I can carry on doing this. Thanks so much. Penelope and Natalie for joining me. Um, we're we're remote and it's Good Friday, so I'm extra extra grateful for you taking the time to do this. And we're going to be talking about digital courts and the revolution or evolution or you know complete mess that's happening at the moment. I don't know. We'll 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 figure that out as we go along. But the first one thing I wanted to ask because I don't think it's obvious to everybody, um, and I'll ask you this to you, Penelope. What what is a court hearing? I mean, I'll give a stab. Uh, I'm not a trained lawyer, but I would say that it's an event involving participants in a legal dispute and involving a judge and possibly a jury, but not always, but a judge who, as part of that court process, is going to make an adjudication at the end of the day as to how to resolve the dispute. Okay. And and what kind of hearings happen in the UK? So if just thinking about things like criminal, civil, court of protection, immigration, all, all of these kind of hearings that, that lawyers will be very familiar with, but I think for the general public might be a bit bewildering. I mean, I'll, I'll just talk criminal and it starts with somebody being charged with a crime by the police normally, but it can be other people as well. And they end up in court at a first appearance, either saying they're guilty or they're not guilty. And then there's a different series of court hearings according to one or the other. So um, you've got the magistrates' courts, which actually hear the vast majority of all criminal hearings in this country. And most things start and end in the magistrate's courts. And most people plead actually guilty to whatever they're charged with. So the idea that the trial is is the the big event in the criminal justice world is not in numbers terms the case. So and 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 that's those are criminal case. Sorry, Natalie, you were gonna jump in there. 
No, I'm happy to pick up on the civil side. So, I mean, I, I think Penelope did a really good job um, of the, defining the hearing. I mean, in basic terms, um, a hearing is where um, parties come together and they get to present evidence and then the judge issues um, a decision in relation to the case. Um, in civil, um, hearings take place for a range of reasons. So civil um, justice, it's quite broad and difficult to define, but it really covers a whole range of issues so that's things like um, issues around housing, issues around um, employment, um, issues around small claims. Um, there are also um, some sort of cross-cutting um, areas like um, domestic violence protection orders which you can have in a civil context um, or in a criminal context. Um, it, civil justice basically is about determining sort of rights and entitlements that are set out um, by law that aren't related to criminal matters. And then alongside that, you have um, the administrative um, justice system, so the system of tribunals, which determine issues around um, other rights, a lot of rights against the state. So you have uh, welfare benefits tribunals, which hear appeals around decisions in relation to things like entitlements to benefits. You have the special educational needs um, tribunal, which hears cases around education provision, which I know you know a lot about, Adam. Um, and I guess that the, the distinction to make is that um, civil courts and um, tribunals are different tribunals tend to be more flexible um, in terms of the rules that are and the discretion that's provided to um, judges to determine how cases are made. They have an explicit duty on them to be um, flexible and efficient. Um, and then alongside that, you have um, immigration tribunals as well, It's a pretty, which here matters around, um, as I've said, sort of immigration and asylum. So it's a big broad picture that we're talking about here and when we're thinking about what's happened to the justice system in the context of um, COVID-19 um, it's worth saying that um, there are different practices emerging across all of the different jurisdictions and things slightly vary even between individual tribunals um, so it's important um, to note that when you're trying to think about this and um, the guidance that's been issued is very much kind of jurisdiction um, specific and it's been developed in, in different ways in different contexts. Okay so just before we get to COVID-19 and, and what, what's going on I guess since mid-March, before mid-March would it be fair to say that almost all court hearings happened in public in a physical court building with everybody going to the court building? Okay, can I say that, that I think crime was a bit different there? So um, every court hearing, most of the participants were in the courtroom, but for a long time, over 15 years, there's been video links for both defendants and witnesses in, in different contexts. So there are video links which have linked prisons to courts where defendants appear from prison into the court, normally on a kind of remand hearing. And then you've got um, cases where witnesses have been um, interviewed or cross-examined on video as well for different reasons. Yeah, so, but but they would be, the, the, so there would be video technology 
potentially on use but generally speaking that would be to dial into a physical court hearing yes I think a, a year after I started practice, about 2011, I was I cross-examined a couple of people on video link from they were in Turkey and I was in a public inquiry in London, and this stuff has been going on for, for quite a long time, so it's not completely completely new. Is it fair to say that, that some hearings, although still quite a limited number, were being broadcast before mid March, so before the COVID nineteen crisis started? Yes. Prior to COVID-19, some hearings such as the Supreme Court um, hearings were being broadcast um, online for people to be able to watch, um, but definitely not the lower courts. Okay. And again, just thinking about the pre-COVID-19 era, um, if we could put it like that, can we talk talk a bit about the principle of open justice and, and what that means and how it manifests itself in courts across the UK in in what I'd describe as normal times? I mean, I'll I'll sort of briefly talk about the criminal courts. And, you know, there's, they're not all open, but the principle is that a criminal hearing should be open to both the public and the media. And the only exceptions to that are the youth court, where Uh, the media are allowed if they're accredited or you can get special permission. But in general, that's for the court, which deals with most cases of under 18-year-old defendants. That is normally closed. And then a few, um, in fact, bail hearings, which they call kind of hearing in chambers, where a defendant who's pleading not guilty, but is trying to get bail, but at the moment is remanded in prison, that hearing is held with just lawyers in in a private room. But the vast majority of cases, you can literally go into the court, you shouldn't be asked why you want to uh, observe anything, and then you can look at the lists and wander into the public gallery of the court. And there are rules about what you can and can't do So you're not supposed to record anything. You're not supposed to take photos, but you can just sit and listen to anything. Yeah, and and, and that from a member of the public's perspective, you you really can just walk into any any court or almost any court uh, up to the Supreme Court. And and actually, in my experience, the Supreme Court are probably the friendliest and um, most straightforward. But there's Natalie what what's the reason for that because it's not just a kind of public spectacle it's not just so people can get a bit of a an entertaining day although usually courts aren't that entertaining it's something deeper than that no absolutely I mean the principle of open justice is a fundamental feature of our legal system and the protection of this principle is enshrined in our common law and under the European Convention on Human Rights. And the reason why it's important is um, the principle of open justice exists to promote a number of really important goals. So firstly, ensuring that the public are informed about what's happening in the courts, um, ensuring that the public understand the law and legal developments um, to enable people to follow how the law is playing out in practice and debate and change it via the democratic process. And fundamentally, open justice um, exists to ensure accountability, and that's accountability of two kinds. So firstly, ensuring 
um, that the law is being applied correctly by the court. Um, and secondly, facilitating um, democratic accountability of the parties to the public, particularly where a case concerns the citizen um, versus the state. And it's actually really vital and has been um, affirmed over many years. Um, and there's a really strict test for um, departure away from the principle that, that courts hearings are held in public and that judgments and orders are made in public. And and I think I'm probably misquoting Lord Justice Hewitt, who said, justice must be done and justice must be seen to be done. And that really sums it up, doesn't it? That the that there is an element of, and always been an understanding that the that justice that is done in private um, can go very wrong, and it's and it and and it can go wrong when it's done in public as well. But at least if it's in public, there is a chance that a journalist or a member of the public or somebody else will see what's going on and raise the alarm, which which quite regularly happens in the courts, and that's all a good thing. Um, but but things are, are different now, aren't they? And, th- and let let's move on to the situation which I, I guess has been going on for about three to four weeks now so from about mid-march when almost all court hearings um have stopped is is that right or is it am i over am i am i over egging that pudding i mean it, it, yeah they haven't in criminal um so there are crucial hearings which are still going on and which are in fact in effect, closed. So these are, so somebody gets arrested by the police and normally they would then be taken to police custody and detained. If they are then charged and uh, continue to be detained by the police in custody, they have to then be produced at the next kind of court that's, that's actually sitting. And that so, you know, the only exception is a Sunday, really. And so those hearings are still going on because the police are still arresting and detaining people. So at that first appearance, either the defendant says they're guilty, in which case they might get sentenced at that first appearance, or they're not guilty. And then they would be either remanded or bailed by the court. So those crucial first appearances, which are about what sentence people get and whether they're at liberty or not, are still happening in the criminal courts. Now, my understanding is some, most of those are happening in a physical court, but a few of those are happening entirely on video. And and in fact, if just so to, to complete the circle, in terms of the coronavirus regulations, which prevent us leaving our house without a reasonable excuse, one of the listed reasonable excuses is if you have to attend court um, or if you, for, for legal reasons. But I think that that needs further legal advice myself because I've been trying to to witness some of these hearings and I can't work out if that counts to a public observer so clearly um i'm not clearly if you're a lawyer involved in a case um or court staff or a judge then that would apply that guidance but um hmcts have said to me courts are open you as a member of the public could go along and observe cases 
But I'm not clear that the guidance um, and even the actual primary legislation allows me to do that. Well, I mean, I'm just reading the. Um, I mean, this is my. Um, this is my regulation of choice at the moment as I feel like I read it 25 times every every hour <laughs> regulation 6h um, which is the list of what, what the, the subparagraphs are lists of reasonable excuses one of them is to fulfill a legal obligation including attending court or satisfying bail conditions or to participate in legal proceedings and to me that that you're absolutely right that is pretty um, unclear for a journalist uh, or a public interest observer because participating I mean I is think really quite, totally unclear yeah. I would not see a public observer as legally participating in the proceedings they are observing proceedings but I don't think participating I, I think that you would have a good chance of the court interpreting that with reference to the open justice principle in article 10 of the european convention and article 6 because that you you could validly say well the the journalist's role or the public observer's role has always been considered to be central to the justice process in which case they certainly are participating in some way because you're positively contributing to the hearing but um, maybe let's not <laughs> I, don't, I, I think you're absolutely right it's not clear it's not sufficiently clear um and for the average member of the public, I mean, the idea that you, uh, it would be pretty terrifying to sort of take that risk and hope that the court would uphold your position were you to be uh, detained. I think, I think, yeah, we have to be a bit realistic about that. To, to return to the point about how many hearings are actually taking place. I mean, we were, it's fair to say that, I mean, nothing that's been put in place has been done in, in bad faith. Unlike lots of other legal jurisdictions um, in England and Wales, we put huge primacy on we've got to keep the show on the road. And I think it's really um, helpful to refer to the Lord Chief Justice's statement at the start of the crisis, which basically said, you know, that given the rapidly evolving situation, there's an urgent need to increase the use of telephone and video technology to hold remote hearings where possible, and that the immediate aim of um, the court service and the judiciary was to maintain a service to, to the public to ensure as many hearings in all jurisdictions can proceed and to continue to deal with all urgent matters. And so there's a really mixed picture in terms of... Um, at which sort of hearings are taking place. And I think one of the concerns about this is that different members of the judiciary seem to have different levels of risk appetite as to whether they're prepared to enable hearings to take place. You have some hearings in the um, commercial courts where the judges have been fairly directive to the parties saying, no, we need to proceed with this um, using video technology or telephone and others where judges are adjourning cases and that does lead to sort of um, an inconsistency in practice depending on where you are and which judge you sit in front of and from a rule of law perspective that's slightly concerning. Well just a bit really because I mean these these this idea that the the courts can sit uh, uh, remotely is you know in my experience I've done quite a number of hearings by telephone but they're usually very sort of minimal um minimally important in in a, in the general litigation if put it like that i've never done a trial by telephone or by video link so this is this is something which is pretty much brand new and has been has been introduced all of a sudden 
so that does give rise to even if it's extremely important to keep the justice system going it does give rise to a number of risks um is that fair penelope i mean i think it's totally fair and i think the risks arise from uh two things one is that the courts are in effect closed so there are hearings which would normally take place anyway where nobody's watching to see what's happening and then the other risk of hearings happening on video which are definitely totally closed where the use of video um prompts real concerns about effective participation do you have any data coming into you about how particular hearings are going and, and what kinds of issues are arising? Um, Natalie, should, should, can I ask you that first? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think there's, at the moment, what we're really relying on is um, people who feel particularly strongly, either particularly that their experience was positive or that they had a particular sort of negative experience of doing this, are, you know, writing blogs or um, sort of providing accounts of, of what's happened. Uh, public law projects are undertaking an exercise to try and capture um, people's experience of, of remote hearings. But I think one of the real issues and concerns um, for me as a researcher and also as a concerned member of the public is the, the absence of data that's being collected about which hearings are taking place, who are the parties involved, do the parties have protected characteristics under the um, Equality Act, which is going to be really important for understanding whether what's been put in place now has had um, a discriminatory impact further down the line or potentially discriminatory impact and um, a lack of um, consistent practice in terms of uh, recording the hearings that are taking place. Um, I accept that sort of cobbling together uh technological solution to enable hearings to be broadcast in this really short time frame is is really difficult and there is also worth saying that there are some real persistent and pressing concerns around privacy and right to forgot right to be forgotten that are engaged when you're talking about the the sort of live transmission of or the live broadcast of hearings online um, but I do think at a bare minimum we need to be recording those hearings that are taking place um, during this period and then making transcripts of those hearings available to researchers and others so that we have a better understanding of what's actually happened during this period. Because it seems to me that what data is coming through is very kind of piecemeal and inconsistent. And what you have is um, lawyers mainly actually saying, oh, well, this was actually, it proceeded fine. It was great. Um, and then one of the things that um, you might have seen was a, blog that was written by um, Professor Celia Kitzinger, who supported um, a party in a case in the Court of Protection, where she was saying, well, actually, from um, the perspective of the person that I was supporting, this really wasn't okay. It didn't feel like justice. Um, they felt that they there was a lack of empathy, that their account wasn't listened to, and real concern about not having my day in court, essentially. Um, and that was a case that concerned a daughter of the father whose case around continuing to be fed um, was being heard in the court of protection. So it's, you know, a really important, distressing case. And I think it was so important to have that account because we're hearing a lot from the professionals that have been involved 
in these hearings, but very little from the perspective of um, unrepresented parties, vulnerable people or other parties to proceedings. Those accounts are just missing at the moment. And I mean, to me, this highlights a problem that actually we've we've had for a while. So the Digital Court Reform Programme has been going on. This is uh, run by the court service for the last five years. And people like myself have been asking all the time, please do proper research with defendants and witnesses and so on to gauge whether they're really able to effectively participate, particularly those who are vulnerable or who have protected characteristics. Please, even with witnesses, try and work out what happens to the outcomes in these cases. And, um, you know, to be honest, it it, it has appeared those concerns have, um, have not been heard. And so we're left with this emergency where there's been a ramping up of these kind of hearings. And as Natalie mentioned, our real understanding of whether they meet um, kind of access to justice principles is is really no better than it was five years ago. Um, and I'm just um, that I just want to pick up on a few points that both that both of you have said. Um, I just want to pick up on something Natalie said, which is about the Equality Act. And there are nine protected characteristics which are protected: things like sex, disability, race age um etc and in terms of let's just talk about disability because i think you were talking about the court of protection um that there is there is a responsibility to make reasonable adjustments to make sure that people who couldn't otherwise access services can access them Um, but is that realistic in this sort of urgent and new um court environment i think it has to be i mean in terms of the, what what we do know um, about um, remote hearings is that there's there's a good body of evidence that certain um, categories of certain part, types of party may be particularly disadvantaged if their cases are heard remotely, and these risks are particularly acute in relation to young adults, people who have English as an additional language, um, whether or not they're assisted by an interpreter, and there's a whole body of work on. And the impact of shifting to remote hearings on the efficacy of interpreters. And um, that's, you know, really sort of well studied. It's also evidence that individuals who are neurodiverse, who have a learning disability, who or who are experiencing mental ill health, might find it much harder to make their case. Individuals who are experiencing issues with drug or alcohol abuse or individuals who are experiencing sort of fear or distress in relation to their case that their ability to engage effectively remotely is is really undermined and I think in terms of you know one of the frustrations of that is that we we know a bit about who's likely to lose out in terms of remote hearings but there's very little good evidence about what a reasonable adjustment actually looks like in the context of of remote hearings. So there are things that you can do. Um, So one of the things that's been um, raised has been about, well, could you provide more intermediaries? Could you provide more support? Could you ensure that people have access to legal advice? And all of those things might help, but we don't have any evidence as to whether say in the current situation where people are joining hearings from separate locations are we then saying that in order for hearings to 
um, proceed effectively. People have to leave and go physically to where the parties are in order to provide effective support. We've just got no evidence that actually having someone sort of dialing into the hearing to support you would mitigate any of the risks or concerns that have been raised. And I do think that is that is a challenge. But in in lots of areas where hearings are proceeding, so for example in the family courts, in the criminal courts, and Penelope's the expert on this. The decisions that are made have lifelong ramifications. And you know, the, the court protection hearing, that's been heard now. That's not going to happen again. That was their that was that person's one chance to have their case heard. And so I think if there are concerns being raised about the effectiveness of of these hearings, we really need to pause and listen and think really carefully about how we can make these hearings safe because the consequences for people of them not being safe and not being effective are are just devastating in in lots of circumstances and and i would say on criminal there's a a real indication that it actually makes a difference to outcomes So in 2010, the government themselves did a pilot of putting defendants on video from the police station for their first appearance. So this is where they've been arrested, they're in police custody, and they were put in a video link um, to the court. And what they found in that research is that those who were on video from the police station were less likely to be legally legally represented. So they were less likely to have a a lawyer giving them advice um, and advocating for them. And they were more likely to get a higher prison sentence on that first appearance. Now, Nobody knows whether the higher prison sentence was because of the lack of legal representation or not, but both those are are human rights issues and they really haven't been properly followed up yet. So at the moment, we have really anybody who where the police station does have that facility is coming into the prison by coming into the court hearing by video. In addition, all those in prison who can get on video links are doing so. So if that study was in any way right, we have a series of miscarriages of justice happening because video is being used, but we don't really know either way. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable. And I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. Is it possible that there is a um, psychological difference for the judge between having a a person there in front of them physically and having them on video link and how they might uh, empathise with the person? I'm I'm just sort of, I'm speculating, but I I do wonder whether there is, that there could be something in that. Well, there was a recent um, blog that was written um, from the perspective of a judge who was saying exactly that, that they found it harder to 
um, exhibit sort of empathy over these modes. And I think, I mean, judicial heuristics, it's a really complicated area. It's ooh, ooh, broadly... Can, can, you, can you explain what heuristics are, please? Oh, sorry. <laughs> for, 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 me, for me, primarily. <laughs> so understanding the way in which like different modes of evidence affect the way um, that judges actually um, make decisions. It, it's a really complicated picture. I, I When I was... Um, doing research in preparation for this um, podcast, there was, in the case of bail hearings that were heard remotely in the US context, one whole program that had introduced sort of video hearings for bail was actually disbanded because they found that the judges were making much harsher decisions when they didn't have the um, person in front of them um, than they did when they were on video. And whilst the evidence is mixed, I think we all understand that the way in which that seeing someone in person versus seeing someone over video link versus seeing someone on versus hearing someone on telephone it does make a difference to how you understand what they're saying and um how you sort of hear what they're saying and one of the observations in the blog I mentioned earlier about the court of protection hearing that was made by um the uh, party's daughter was that she felt at least from her perspective, that it would have been harder for the judges to reach the or the judge to reach the decision that he did in that case, um, if she had been in the court. She felt that because she was sort of appearing on video link and they had to periodically sort of turn their um, cameras off, um, that she was kind of forgotten about once she'd given her witness statement, and it would have been much harder for them to make those um, decisions, the decision that they did if they'd have had to sort of see her in person. Um, and I, whether or not, um, whilst we've not got sort of clear evidence either way, because, you know, people have made arguments that actually, you know, not judges or people in general tend to over rely on um, physical um, manifestations of behaviour and um, that actually appearing um, or not appearing in person might help diminish some kinds of um, sort of unintentional bias. Um, in the absence of sort of good information or robust studies that that illustrate this either way, we do have to take seriously how parties to the case feel about their experience because there is a good body of evidence to suggest that actually people's feelings about the procedure that they've undergone really deeply matter in terms of their respect for the justice system their trust in the justice system and their willingness um, to actually um, obey the law and so attending to how people feel about what happens in these settings and how they feel about the legitimacy of the process that they've been through is actually really important and and can I just point out to on the court of protection um case the thing that's happening differently now that has never happened before is the reliance on sound only when you've got um, real people participating. So as you mentioned, Adam, at the beginning, there have been telephone kind of administrative hearings in the past between lawyers and the judge uh, on the phone. But what is often happening now with these hearings, and this is to do with people's bandwidth and so on, is that say there's one person uh, whose visuals everybody can see and everybody else is encouraged to turn off their camera, which means 
you know, it is in effect a telephone hearing. And I think all the issues about participating uh, on video get worse if it's phone only. Um, I'm just going to read a paragraph, if I may, on that from Celia Kitzinger's um, Professor Celia Kitchen's blog, which is so she was she was assisting a an individual in a court of protection hearing, um, and court of protection are, are hearings are the most sensitive, difficult cases. Um, I mean, amongst the most sensitive, difficult cases dealing with the best interests of people with mental um, health issues, all sorts of other kinds of cases um, that are that go that really need to be dealt with incredibly sensitively. And she said. She talks about the the, the sort of fundamental difference between of a f- the feel of being alone with the client or the client being being alone themselves and appearing by video. Um, she says, "I'm just going to pick pick up about halfway through the blog." But it was precisely the casual attire, the distracting pets, the domestic backdrops that added to Sarah's distress as Sarah's uh, her client. Um, or her, the person she's assisting. During the three days of this hearing, I was with Sarah in person. We were in a solicitor's office in an otherwise empty building along with Sarah's pro bono solicitor and barrister. The four four of us were there together attempting social distancing as per government instructions because we hadn't heard the hearing would be conducted by Skype until the day before. We'd been told to prepare for a face-to-face hearing at Nottingham Civil Justice Centre when the news came through that it would be moved to Skype. Sarah was on a flight from her home outside the UK and I was on a train from my home in Cumbria. As it turned out, I'm glad and relieved that Sarah and I will be able to be together for the hearing um, and also to have Sarah's legal team there to be to explain what was happening. I cannot begin to imagine how tough it would have been for Sarah to go through this alone, listening without support to impenetrable arguments between lawyers about her beloved father, conducted in language that was, as she reminded us, way above my pay grade. I think she, she'd have simply become disengaged and unable to follow the proceedings. According to one study, that's exactly what happened to litigants held in detention centres in the USA. They stopped engaging with the legal process and were more likely to be deported as a result. I mean, I mean, that's it's really quite striking, isn't it? And quite visceral about how it must feel for the layperson. Oh, absolutely. And I think what's really, um, I mean, it's stunning that Professor Kitzinger wrote this but what's really concerning when you think about it is would we even know about this if Sarah hadn't had support um, because there's no indication that Sarah would have been you know writing that blog herself um, the only reason we know about this is because there was like an external person observing the hearing who was then able to sort of feed through Sarah's experience Um, and we know that in this context with the current situation that just isn't happening um, or is unlikely to happen in lots of cases and I thought so it really is it's so it's an amazing thought-provoking piece and it does really concern me that you know if that's one person's voice um how are we making sure that we're capturing the experience of people who aren't sort of professional users? Uh, to, to balance this, I do think it's, you know, it's really important to state that, um, you know, we don't know enough also about people's perceptions in the context of a physical justice system. And, you know, there's not, we, it's difficult to establish um, 
a sort of counterfactual in a way of like would Sarah have felt the same in a physical court hearing um or not we we just don't know but I I do think what we do know is um that you know there are really strong indications that when um people participate um remotely they don't always appreciate the seriousness or finality of proceedings and therefore they don't avail themselves of legal advice and support they have difficulty communicating with their legal representative when they have questions or concerns that's if they have a legal representative or indicating when they're finding the proceeding difficult to follow and that technical issues relating to the technology make it more difficult for parties to follow proceedings so screens freezing and that you know that experience really does vary depending on your means and depending on the type of technology and broadband and other things that you have available to you and there's emerging evidence that you know change in the way hearings are conducted affects perceptions of credibility and impacts on decision making and so it's really important that judges are aware that this might be the case when hearing so that they can sort of adjust for that um and and the other issue to kind of circle back to something that you said earlier is that it's much harder for the court to discern whether parties are vulnerable when they appear remotely um and the sort of legislation and guidance places a huge burden on judges to identify when a party is finding it difficult to communicate or may have an underlying vulnerability that might make um, hearing proceeding with the hearing in this way unsafe. And given that, you know, we know that that's, it's really difficult to do in a physical setting, it's even harder to do in a remote setting, there are real concerns that the sort of safeguards that are being put in place in the absence of proper training and guidance on how do you identify when someone might be vulnerable when they're appearing remotely um, it, it's it's really difficult to sort of think about are those safeguards operating effectively in this context yeah for, I mean the irony for me in some ways uh, the kind of negative you know it's a negative irony is that these problems have been occurring in the criminal courts with video links for years and years and years already. So what's happening now is people in other court contexts are now experiencing similar problems. So when I, Transform Justice, did research on defendants on video links, and I actually caught um, a Twitter exchange of a lawyer who'd simply observed an unrepresented defendant, so that's somebody appearing in the police station without a lawyer, um, and they had seen the case as it was the case before theirs. And the whole case went on, and it was only afterwards, and, and the guy didn't seem to be saying anything, the defendant, and it was only afterwards that the police officer who was accompanying him in the police station revealed that the defendant was actually deaf, and he'd been on a remote hearing but deaf, and then um, equally, I've talked to police um, staff who work on these hearings between police stations, video linked to courts, and they say absolutely regularly, the defendant leaves the room where they've had their hearing in the police station and they ask the member of police staff what happened there. They leave the court hearing not understanding what had happened. So, 
Um, I, I, I mean, there's there's a lot of issues which can arise, and quite a lot, of, quite a few of them, very concerning. But and, and I don't want to sound too glib about this, but we are where we are, aren't we? Because certain hearings are going to have to continue during this this emergency period. Um, this the social distancing period may go on for a number of more weeks and potentially months, and things like court court protection hearings certain criminal hearings are going to have to carry on going arguably otherwise um so the, the issues won't be resolved so if you were each to pick a couple of things which you would want to prioritize in getting right um what would they be i'll, I'll start with you natalie oh gosh um so firstly i think getting really like putting really effective processes in place for identifying when someone might need um, a reasonable adjustment um, to participate effectively. And I think in this context, it is really hard, right? Because lots of the sort of touch points by which, um, who, by which vulnerability would be identified are, are likely to be missing. But I think providing sort of ensuring that all judges who are, undertaking hearings during this time are really made aware of the factors that might um, impede on someone's ability to participate effectively so that they're taking those into account I think that would be really that's really important I think recording all hearings um, is super important to ensure that we have a comprehensive picture of you know what happened in these hearings um, during this period I just think it's you know, absolutely vital, um, and ensuring where possible um, that parties who are taking part in um, these hearings are provided with, you know, effective access to advice. So we give people, you know, the best chance possible of being able to sort of follow and understand what what's happening to them during this period. Um, one thing is for the HMCTS and the government to work out how to let the public observe criminal hearings. So it's pretty difficult about turning up at court, but what about letting us in somehow on these video hearings where lawyers are on video already? So it's technically possible, but so far no public observer has been allowed to access those hearings, which are supposed to be open. And I suppose the other thing would just be um, for a plea for the police to use their discretion as much as possible in those that they detain post-charge in the police station, because it's only those defendants who are having to appear in court at the moment. And given that they're not open courts and one is slightly concerned about um, uh, you know, whether they've got legal representation and so on. The ideal is to reduce the number of those hearings as much as possible. And I think just to follow up on what Penelope said, I think in, in practical terms on this sort of open justice, allowing people to observe point, there are some really simple things that could be done. So listings should be published online and those listings should clearly state whether the remote hearings that are going to be held are going to be held in public or in private. And those court lists should be made available at least 24 hours in advance so that people who want to observe can make arrangements to join the hearing remotely. Reporting restrictions would be published online to ensure that those are comp complied with. 
And alongside the listings, guidance should be published setting out who do you contact if you want to arrange to um, observe that hearing. Um, I think that's kind of simple, practical suggestions that could be made to um, facilitate this. And lastly, can I say, I think that that issue about whether a public observer going to the court is contravening the law or not, there needs to be some guidance on that. Okay. Um, Well, I mean, there's loads, loads and loads that we're going to find out from this um, experience. It's an unexpected and unwanted experience, I guess. There may be some uh, advantages because we may learn more about how to safely and successfully do some hearings, which could efficiently be done online or by by video um but i imagine not the most sensitive hearings which will probably still we'd still want to be done in person um and hopefully things will resolve themselves to an extent over the next few weeks but um let let's um keep in touch to make sure that we can do as much as we can to to achieve that so thank you so much natalie and thank you so much penelope for coming on the podcast it's a pleasure a delight thank you so much for having us Thank you very much to Natalie Byram from the Legal Education Foundation and Penelope Gibbs from Transform Justice. The podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. And Goldsmiths Law are currently recruiting for three new lectureships, including one in human rights. And you can find more information on their website. If you find the podcast interesting and find it useful, then please consider giving a couple of pounds a month via the Patreon, patreon.com forward slash better human to make sure that this podcast can continue. Thanks very much. I've been Adam Wagner. This has been the Better Human Podcast. See you next time. Keep safe and well. Thank you.